0: Well, I can assure you that you and I weren't left here by an accident. He didn't just jump in the car and leave us. Um, it was intentional on the part of God for him to leave you here after he saved you. You were left here because God has a plan and a purpose for your life and my life right here today in this moment. If God had wanted to, he could have removed any or all of us at the very second that he saved our soul. You know, the Bible teaches that one day he's going to remove all believers. And that's when Jesus comes to rapture the church. We, we call that the rapture of the church, the bride of Christ. And Paul talked about that in, or in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15. Notice what he says in the very beginning of verse 15. He said, I can tell you this directly from the Lord. In other words... I didn't get this from the newspaper, I didn't hear it on the radio, it wasn't something somebody told me, it was Jesus himself who gave me these words. He said, we who are still living when the Lord returns will not rise to meet him ahead of those that are in their graves. Now, some people who believe in soul sleep would take that and say, when you die, you sleep in the grave until the Lord comes. No, that's not what he's teaching here. He's teaching you that your body does go into the ground. Dust returns to dust. And your soul goes to be with the Lord. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the call of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. First, he says, all of the Christians who have died will rise from their graves. That's when those bodies are going to be... Put all back together, transformed into a body that can live in eternity and in space, wherever heaven's at, out there. He puts the body together, brings it up, the soul goes back into the body and they become an individual who can spend eternity with God. Then he says, together with them, we who are still alive and remain here on earth will be caught up. Like Scotty, beam me up, you know. We're going to be caught up into the clouds. Notice that. The Lord doesn't come at that point and put his feet on the earth. He's in the clouds. We're caught up to meet him in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and remain with him forever. So comfort each other, encourage each other with these words. That is when the whole church, the body of Christ, all true believers. We'll be taken off that off this planet and we'll remain with the Lord forever. We'll be in the clouds with him at least seven years. That's the time of the great tribulation. Then there's the thousand year millennial reign. I believe we're going to be here on earth with him. That's what scripture teaches. We know that that is a future event. It hasn't happened yet. You haven't missed it. It's coming. And you know, we're, we're kind of those people, if I haven't seen it, I don't believe it. Well, how do we know? Beyond the words that Paul gives us, how do we know that there's going to be a a great snatch-up, the rapture of the church somewhere in the future? How do we know? I mean, do we have proof that it's going to happen? Can it happen? Well, if you study your scripture, you'll find that the Bible tells us that it's already happened on a very small scale, very small. On two different occasions, A single person each time was caught up into the heavens without dying. Have I got your attention? I hope so. The first of those men was a man by the name of Enoch. He lived a very, very long, long time ago. He is one of only two people that the Bible says walked with God. Now what does it mean to walk with God? It means that he had a very deep, intimate relationship with God. Noah was also a man that walked with God. The only difference is Noah died at the age, the ripe old age, of 950. Boy, the government would have a problem with that if he went on Medicare and <laughs> Medicaid, <laughs> you know, Social Security, all that kind of stuff. Um, he died. But the Bible says that Enoch never died. In fact, Genesis 5.23 says Enoch lived 365 years in all. He enjoyed a close relationship with God throughout his life. And then suddenly he disappeared because God took him. Well, that's what it says in the Old Testament. A lot of people today live and they go, well, you know, that's the Old Testament. We're in the New Testament age. So we don't have that. that. Maybe it happened. Maybe it didn't. Well, we have in the New Testament a credible witness that said it did. That verifies what was said in Genesis. The writer of Hebrews chapter 11 verse 5 says it was by faith that Enoch was taken up to heaven without dying. Suddenly he disappeared because God took him. But before he was taken up he was approved as pleasing to God. He was snatched up. Just removed. Well how in the world is that possible? Well I can say to you I don't know. I wasn't there. I didn't see it. But I did read a story about a little girl who learned about Enoch in in her Sunday school class. And she went home and she told her mom all about what she had learned. And the minute she walked in the door, she saw her mom and she began to say to her mom, Hey, mom, my teacher told us about Enoch in Sunday school this morning and uh, that he he, he walked with God. And she said, the mom said to her, "Well, Well, what does all that mean? And so the little girl went on to say, well, you know, it seems as if God one day was wanting to visit with Enoch, and he he walked by, and he said to Enoch, hey, Enoch, I want you to take a walk with me. It's a little girl telling this. And Enoch would come out of his house and down to the gate, and he'd go walking with God. And he got to the place where he enjoyed that so much that he would just get up, go down to the gate, and wait for God to come by. One day, another day, God came by and came along and said, Enoch, let's take a walk. And he did that several days in a row. And then one day, God came by and said, Enoch, let's take a long, long walk today. And so they walked and they walked and they walked. And finally, Enoch said to God, you know, my, it's getting late in the afternoon and I think I need to get back to my house. But God said to him, you know, Enoch, we're a whole lot closer to my house than we are to your house. So why don't you just come home with me? And so Enoch went home with God. Oh, the imagination of a little child. Who knows? It may have happened that way. I don't know. In her mind it did. I don't know. But, you know, this I do know. I know that the Bible says that Enoch was taken into heaven without dying. So that means to me that it's possible. It has happened. If it happened once, it can happen again. So Enoch was the first to experience being taken into heaven alive. He was one of only two men that that kind of thing happened to. So Enoch was taken that way. Elijah was another man. Elijah. On on a particular day, I believe it was a divine appointment day, Elijah and his protege, Elijah, almost the same but different. It's hard for me to get those out. So if I mess them up, please forgive me. One day Elijah and Elijah were walking along. They were going from Gilgal to Bethel. And they came to the Jordan River and they needed to get on the other side. And they didn't have a boat and they didn't have waders. And so Elijah did something with his cloak and God parted the waters and they walked across on dry ground. A miracle. Imagine that. In verse 9 of 2 Kings it says... When they came to the other side, Elijah said to Elijah, What can I do for you before I am taken away? Now, if you read that whole account, you're going to find that evidently they knew that this event was going to transpire. Not only did Elijah know it, but the school of prophets, a lot of men knew that Elijah was going to be taken. And Elisha said, Please let me become your rightful successor. In other words, I want to take your job. And he said, Elijah said to him, You have asked a very difficult thing, but if you see me when I am taken from you, then you will get your request, but if not, then you won't. And as they were walking along and talking, suddenly a chariot of fire appeared, drawn by horses that were of fire, and, and it drove between them, separating them, and Elijah was carried up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha? He saw it, and he cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and the charioteers of Israel. And as they disappeared from his sight, Elisha tore his robe in two. He ripped it. And then Elisha picked up Elijah's coat cloak and returned to the bank of the Jordan River. As you can see, according to Scripture, God can take people into heaven without them dying, and we have an account of that. He's done that before with these two men. It is very far from the norm, not to say that God won't do it again, but He normally doesn't do that, but God could if He wanted to. Amen? He just has different plans for you and for me. So why did God take these two men? Well, I really don't know. That's one of those questions I plan to ask when I get to heaven. Why did He leave you? Why has He left me? I know the answer to that one. He has work for us to do. That's what Scripture says. Ephesians 2 8, 9, and 10. Paul writes, You have been saved by grace through believing. You did not save yourself, it was a gift from God, it was not the result of your own efforts. So, you cannot brag about it. God has made us what we are. In Christ Jesus, God made us to do good works, which God planned in advance for us to live our lives doing. Now, if you happen to be an evangelical Christian, these three verses probably are pretty familiar to you. They are some of my favorite verses in Scripture. I, I remember back years ago when I started getting uh, serious about my faith with the Lord. I remember memorizing verse 8 and 9. But honestly, I don't remember ever, even to this day, memorizing verse 10. Now, how many of you have verse 10 memorized? <laughs> I didn't think so. You see, I think I know why. You see, verse 8 and 9 focus on the grace of God. In other words, what God has done for us in His work, what He has done, what He's given us. But verse 10 has an entirely different focus. When you look at verse 8 and 9, you you find that it reminds us that our salvation is a gift from God and, and that no one can earn their way into heaven by doing good works. In other words, no one gets into heaven by being good. Or by doing a lot of religious deeds. Pastor Dennis Nunn said. We rightfully talk about the fact that Christianity differs. From almost every other religion. In the fact that they focus on our actions. In other words our works. In fact they come right out and tell you sometimes. That you get into heaven by all the good stuff you do. And the more good stuff you do. The better place you have in heaven. But Dennis says. They focus on our actions, whereas Christianity focuses on what Christ has done. I said to you last week that if you're saved, your salvation is the work of God. You can't work your way into heaven. I don't care how many good deeds you do. The work of Christ on the cross and His grace is what gets us in. If you get into heaven, it's going to be by the grace of God that you do so. Not the skin of your teeth, but the grace of God. Now, most of us understand that, and we're grateful to God for His grace, and we're thankful for what the Word of God teaches us in verse 8 and 9. But but to be honest, most all of us, we'll read verse 8 and 9, but then we just kind of skip over or overlook verse 10. And you know what? It's real easy. It's real easy to focus on what God does for us and to give Him praise and honor and glory and just thank Him for that. But it's not so easy for us to focus on what we're supposed to be doing for God. We'll talk about what God's done for us. But but when you bring up the subject about what we're supposed to do for God. We kind of just get hush mouth. And we disappear. The Bible says that you need God's grace. We all need God's grace. Grace is something that we receive. It is God giving us something we don't deserve. Things like forgiveness. We don't deserve to be forgiven, but God gives us forgiveness. It's it's like salvation. We don't deserve to be saved, but he gives us salvation. Eternal life. We've not earned that in any way, but we need it and we receive it through grace. But grace is also a gift that God gives us that is meant to prompt us to do good works. I want to read Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 through the NIV translation. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Notice verse 10. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I want you to please notice. That verse 10 begins with the word for. For. F-O-R. Circle that word. For. For which, you know, the word for ties together the saving grace of God that you find in verse 89 with the resulting good works of believers in verse 10. In other words, God's amazing grace saves us. And it should also motivate us to go out and do good works for God. So God's grace and man's work, they go together. In fact, God has foreordained the good works that we should be busy doing. He says in verse 10, For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So it is no accident that you have a job to do for God. It wasn't by chance either. It was intentional on God's part. God planned it that way. God give, gifted you with His grace for you to be able to produce kingdom works. So my question to all of us is: How are we doing on the job? How are we doing? God wants us to evaluate that. If God is intentional. About his gift, then you and I should be intentional about our service to the Lord. That is exactly what Jesus is talking about when he said in Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen, "I have given, I have been given, excuse me, I have been given complete authority in heaven and on earth." Think about that. We, we think about our little planet as being, you know, everything evolves around this planet. Well, guess what? No, it doesn't. Your little world is not all there exists. He talks about earth, but then he talks about the heavens, everything out there. And what Jesus said is that I have been, been given authority over it all. So I guess you would call him the big boss, right? The big boss, the biggest boss. He goes on to say, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I have given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The lost world that you and I live around and in, the people of this world, are not expected to come to us for what they need. God expects us to go to them no matter where they live or where they stay. In other words, we have to be willing to go wherever we need to go to be able to reach them. And guess what? None of us, none of us will go unless we are intentional about it. It has to be a part of your agenda. It has to be a part of your plan. It has to be a part of your your lifestyle. You will never accidentally lead somebody to Jesus Christ. It doesn't happen accidentally. You have to want to. It has to be a priority in your life. You have to plan to be able to do that. I I, I read this quote by Dr. Evans the other day to you, and, and, and it's so relevant even for this message. He said the nations are not told to come to Christians for the gospel. We need to go to them. The church is not doing the work of the church if we're not winning souls to Christ. We must keep evangelism front and center in the life of the church. If the church is going to grow by making disciples, then we have to have people. People who are willing to go into the whole world as the witnesses of Christ. So friends, intentionality is a critical piece of being effective in carrying out the Great Commission. If you commit yourself to going and making disciples, then disciples will be made. Personal commitment is the key. You know, I I praise God. It was a a wonderful thing on Monday night to see that we have more people signed up right now and participating in our evangelism strategy than we had 15 years ago. So that means we're growing in our intentionality. We're growing and learning how to be effective disciple makers. We're learning how to fish for men and women, for boys and girls, the souls of of people who need to know Christ. We've been called to do that. It is a privilege. It is a responsibility, but it's also a calling. And by the way, here's something else that we've been called to do. Not only are we to, to be intentional about our witnessing, But Great Commission churches also help new believers with identification. I want you to look again at what Jesus told his disciples to do. And by the way, we're disciples. We should be. Uh, we, We learned the other night that you can be a Christian and not be a disciple. That's interesting, but it's true. But Jesus said, to those first disciples, I want you to go. You have to be intentional. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. Now look at what he says next. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So a second very important element of the church's mission of making disciples includes baptizing those to whom we have gone and one to Christ. The command to baptize people is not just about getting people wet. If all you want to do is get people wet, invite your neighbors over to a pool party. Or let them use your hot tub. You know, I'm afraid that there already exists way too many professing Christians who were baptized as dry sinners and they only came out as wet sinners. Think about that a little while. There's a whole lot more to, to baptism than than just participating in a religious ritual involving water. It has purpose. So let me be very clear here. And I, you know, it's funny how things happen. I have already had this morning conversation that not, I did not intend to have about what somebody's out there teaching about baptism being a part of your salvation. It is not. No way does baptism have anything to do with your being saved. You don't have to trust Jesus plus baptism to be saved. No one is saved by the good things you do. If you're not already saved when I baptize you, you will not be saved simply by getting wet. You'll just be wet, completely wet, because I'm going to put you under Completely wet, but yet still completely lost. Baptism doesn't save you in any way, but it does serve a very good purpose, a great purpose. You see, the primary meaning of the Greek word for baptism is all about identification. If you go back and look in the book of Acts, you'll find that it tells the story of the very first sermon that Peter ever preached on the day of Pentecost. It was a powerful sermon, but not because Peter preached it but simply because God was at work in a very powerful way. Peter simply was preaching the words that God gave him to preach. And then he gave an invitation for lost people to respond. That's what the invitation is. That's what we do at the end of the service. We give an invitation. And that's what he did for people to respond to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to trust Jesus and be saved. And if you read that text, you find that a lot of people got saved that day. A lot of people. In fact, verse 40 says, Then Peter continued preaching for a long time, a lot longer than I preach. Strongly urging all his listeners, save yourself. Not that they could, but they needed to be saved and and, 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 and separated from the world that they were living in. And that's what he's talking about there. He's really saying, make a decision to, to part company with the world. Save yourself from this generation that has gone astray. In verse 41 it says Those who believed what Peter said They trusted in the Jesus that Peter preached about Said they were baptized and added to the church About 3,000 in all Oh, that'd be a great day Can you imagine baptizing 3,000 people? You'd look like a prune when you got out of the water that day What were these people doing? Well, they were being obedient to Christ. Because if you read a little bit further up in that text, you'll find that at one point in Peter's message, it was so powerful that, that these men said, Sirs, what must we do to be saved? And Peter said, Repent. Turn to God and be baptized. In other words, be saved and follow the Lord and believers' baptism. That's what they were doing. They were being obedient. They were also identifying with Jesus. Now, you see, this word, baptism. Painted a very clear picture in New Testament times. And, and it still does today. This word was used for the process of dipping a piece of cloth into a vat of liquid dye. So that the cloth could be completely identified with, with, the, with the dye, the specific dye, by absorbing its particular color. Again, the cloth would be completely immersed in the dye until it took on the color character of the dye. So by doing that to the cloth, it always underwent a complete identity change. A white piece of cloth dipped in red dye became completely red, the same color red as that of the dye. So they became identical. Do you get the picture? Do you see it? Do you understand? So often, salvation takes place in a quiet and a private way. Just you and the person who shares Christ with you and leads you to faith in Christ. That's why we often say that our salvation is personal and it's private. And that is true. And it's good. But God never intended for your salvation to stay personal and private. In fact, the Lord wants you to take your faith in Christ public. In other words, Jesus didn't save you to go run and hide in a closet. Or or even to remain silent so that nobody ever finds out that you're a Christian. God wants you to tell the world that you made a decision to trust Jesus Christ. He wants you to speak that, say that, declare Him Lord of your life with the words you use. But you know sometimes action speaks a lot louder than words. And this is one of those cases. Baptism is more than just saying, I am a new Christian. It is a public declaration of your new relationship with Christ. You see, when you put your trust in Christ, in the truest sense you become so completely identified with Christ that his death and resurrection to new life becomes your death and resurrection. Paul describes it that way in Romans chapter 6. He writes, Well, then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more kindness and forgiveness? In other words, now that the grace of God has been applied to our life, should we just keep sinning so He pours more grace on us? Absolutely not, he says. Of course not. Since we've died to sin how can we continue to live in sin or have you forgotten that when you became Christians and and were baptized to become one to identify with Christ Jesus we died with him for we died and were buried with Christ by baptism and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father now we also may live new lives. What, what all this means is that when you allow yourself to be scripturally baptized by immersion, you're painting a picture for the world to see that says, I, I have died to that old life that I live. I go into the water, a dying man, and I come out of the water resurrected to live a new life in Christ. I'm a new person when I come out. Symbolically, instantly, folks, when when you become a new person in Christ by by putting your faith in the Lord, in that moment, the moment that you trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, you literally become a new person in the eyes of God. But then later, as you observe the ordinance of believer's baptism, you publicly demonstrate your new life and the way you're going to live it. Uh, Dr. Evans again says the ordinance of water baptism was given to the church as an outward testimony to this inward change. I've said for many, many, many years that baptism is an outward expression of an inward transformation that's already taken place. It's an outward symbol. It's a symbol not a salvation experience. It's a symbol just like the wedding ring is a symbol. I, uh, I remember my first trip to Thailand. I went into a, a, a clothing store to buy some Hawaiian shirts. Imagine that. <laughs> Most of the, the, the clothing stores over there that you go in, uh, there's usually a guy that runs the store. He's a tailor. He's usually from India or Pakistan, somewhere in that part of the country. But on this particular day, the store I went into, it was a lady, and she was Thai. And she said, Can I help you? And I said, I'm just looking. So I looked around and looked around, and she saw me uh, heading for the door. She said, Oh, you know, you know, find what you look for. I said, Oh, no, ma'am, I didn't find what I was looking for. I didn't find a shirt that I wanted. She said, Can I get you a Thai lady? I said, oh, no, 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 I don't need one. I am married. She said, oh, no matter. I said, it matters to me. (laughs) I got my hind parts out of that building (laughs) as quick as I could. Guys, my, my wedding ring is an outward symbol of an inward commitment that I made to Joyce. 44 years ago. You know, I I wear my wedding ring to identify myself as her husband. I am whether she likes it or not. (laughs) (laughs) I belong to her. It's her problem, not mine. You know, as a Christian, we, we belong to God in Christ. So do you if you've been saved. Dr. Evans says so many Christians today struggle in their daily lives because they don't understand their new identity. They don't know who they are in Christ. We have to realize that being in Christ is such a radically new way of life that whatever happens to Christ happens to us. That's why the Bible says that when Christ died, we died. And when Christ rose from the dead, we arose. It's like putting a letter in an envelope and sealing it shut. He said, when I do that, I don't have to ask, where's the letter? Where the letter is because the letter is safely sealed inside the envelope. So wherever the envelope goes, the letter goes. And it is against the law for anyone but the recipient of the sealed envelope to break that seal. I want you to understand that Christ is the the envelope. And as people who have put their faith in Christ, in Him, we are the letter. And through believers' baptism, we are identifying ourselves as belonging to Him and Him alone. So baptism identifies us as children of God who are in Christ. You know, as Great Commission Christians, we have to be intentional about taking our faith Uh, The the good news to the lost world. It is also our responsibility to help new believers identify with Christ through baptism. But there's a third thing that we're taught in the Great Commission passage. And that is that that we have also the responsibility of spiritual instruction. Look at verse 20. He said, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I've given you. Teach them. Teach them. Teach them. Well, what are we supposed to be teaching new believers? Can I just say the truth? <laughs> the truth based on the Word of God. Yes, we need to teach biblical doctrine. We need to teach theology, Christology, soteriology, and all the other ologies of the Christian faith. But the most important thing that we should be teaching these new believers is obedience obedience to be obedient to Christ in other words we should be teaching these new believers to obey the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ let me say it another way we need to be teaching not just to produce head smarts but heart service as we obey the Lord we must make sure that we're teaching the truth of God's Word but when you do that what you're going to find is that God's word teaches us over and over to obey the commands of the Lord. Our job is not just to teach for content, but to teach for commitment, personal commitment to following Christ and His commands. Um, again, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of on using Tony a big way today, but Dr. Evans says some great stuff, and, and he said this, and 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 this may. Make you feel comfortable, it may make you feel uncomfortable, but don't blame me, Tony said it, okay? That's why I quote people. You're not supposed to throw rocks at me, throw them at them. No, anyway, Um, the church, look at what he says, he said, the church today has too many spiritual bulimics who take in the word of God at church on Sunday, but then throw it up as soon as they get home so it doesn't do them any good. The goal of biblical teaching is to combine information and knowledge with skill in applying God's truth to your daily life. If you're reading the Word of God and it's not changing you, you're believing. But you're not the first to have that problem. I want you to understand that even the people that walked with Jesus had that problem. Well, how do you know that? Well, I want you to look with me at Mark chapter 8. Interesting story here. I'm going to read most of it, not all of it, but some of it. At the time, Jesus was going around preaching the gospel, the truth about himself. And these great crowds kept following Jesus. And it said about this time, another great crowd had gathered and the people ran out of food. Jesus called his disciples. He was very observant. I don't know that the disciples were. But Jesus said to his group of men, I feel sorry about these people. They've been with me now for three days and they have nothing left to eat. And if I send them home without feeding them, they will faint along the road for some of them have come a long distance. What was Jesus saying? saying do something do something about the need of these people but he was also teaching them about their relationship with him personally he was trying to help them understand where they were in relationship to him well when Jesus said these words his disciples asked how are we supposed to find enough food for them here in the middle of the wilderness in other words there's not a grocery store anywhere to be seen Walmart's not anywhere around either. You know, we don't have a place to go get food. You'd expect the disciples to say that. And then Jesus says this. How many loaves of bread do you have? Interesting. And they said, well, we've got seven. So Jesus told all the people to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves. He gave thanks to God for these loaves of bread. He broke them into pieces. And he gave them to his disciples who then distributed the bread to the crowd. Interesting. And verse 7 says, a few small fish were found as well. So Jesus also blessed them and told the disciples to pass them out. Now look at verse 8. This is important. They all ate until they were full. This wasn't like, oh, I got a piece of beef jerky and I got a taste of meat. No, it says they were full. And when the scraps were picked up, there were seven large baskets of food that were left over. I thought we started out with seven loaves. Do you see that God can take what He's given you and expand it into being a whole lot more? It takes faith to see that happen. But notice verse 9. There were about 4,000 people in the crowd that day. 4,000. 4,000. And after He fed them, He sent them away. But then verse 10 says something interesting. Immediately after this object lesson of teaching the disciples what he can do, he got into the boat with his disciples and they crossed over to the region of Dalmantha. Then it talks a little bit more. And then in verse 14 it says, Upon getting there, the disciples discovered that they had forgotten to bring any food. They left those seven baskets of of scraps left over. They left them where they were at. And they only brought one loaf of bread. They weren't prepared. They weren't thinking. You know, I don't know what was going on in their mind. But it said the disciples discovered they had forgotten to bring any food. So there was only one loaf of bread with them in the boat. And they're worried. They're thinking about it now. As they cross the lake, Jesus warned them. He said, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. Well, you put yeast in bread sometimes. But Jesus wasn't talking about bread here. He wasn't talking about how to make bread. He was saying, don't let the lack of faith of these religious leaders penetrate and, and come into your life. Don't buy into their lack of faith. Verse 16 says they decided that he was saying this because they hadn't brought any bread. Wrong answer. Jesus knew what they were thinking. Why? Because he's God. And look at what he says. Why are you so worried about having no food? Won't you ever learn or understand Are your hearts too hard to take it in? You have eyes, can't you see? You have ears, can't you hear? Don't you remember anything at all? Where have you been for the last couple of weeks? What about the 5,000 that I fed with five loaves of bread? How many baskets were left over? Baskets of leftovers did you pick up after? They go, 12? And when I fed the 4,000 with seven loaves, how many large baskets of leftovers did you pick up? Seven. Look at what he says in verse 21. Don't you understand anything yet? Don't you get it? Well, obviously they didn't. He was trying to teach them To have faith and trust in Him as the great provider. He was trying to teach them, As God, I can do anything you need done. Put your trust in me. He wants us to understand that. He wants us to be people of faith. He wants us to teach new believers to trust in God. Guys, I want you to understand we do that by what we teach. But even more so, we do that by how we live. Making disciples is a process of spiritual development. And it should be the heart passion of our church. It was the heart passion of Jesus Christ. And if we're going to be like Jesus, we have to be intentional about going and sharing our faith with a lost world. We have to help new believers identify with Christ by baptizing, baptizing them as believers. We have to instruct them on how to be obedient to follow Christ. That is what great commission churches do. Why have I said all of this? Somebody asked me the other day, how do you put messages together? Where do you get what you preach? Honestly, I study in a lot of places, but my one source is Jesus. My one source is the Lord. God points me in a direction, and, and I put forth the effort, but God makes it all come together. And what God has said to me is, that you've got some people in your church that are new believers. Maybe, they've been, maybe they're brand-new believers. Maybe they're believers that have trusted the Lord for some time now. And maybe you need to identify with Christ publicly through believers' baptism. Oh, by the way, if you read your bulletin, you're going to find that we're having a baptismal service October 6th. And if you haven't already signed up for that, if you haven't already come forward and committed yourself to following the Lord and believers' baptism, you can do that today, and we'll get you on the list for on the sixth. Maybe you need to be involved in a Bible study so that you can receive the instruction you need to be able to walk with God and have faith in God and serve the Lord. Uh, we've got plenty of Bible study classes, and today is a great day to start going to Bible study. Amen? I knew you'd say amen. I know the kind of people you are. Amen. And you know, for the most part, we're Christians, and we've been Christians for a long, long time. Some relatively soon, uh, or not long ago, others for most of their life. I think we all need to be asking the question, what is my role? What is my role? Helping our church be a great commission church. What, what does God want me to do? He wants you to be a witness. He wants you to go making disciples wherever you go. Being a witness for Christ. To do that, you have to be intentional. You have to commit yourself. I, I, I told somebody this the other day. You know, if I get up in the morning, business is usual, and don't think about being a witness, it'll never get done. But if I get up in the morning and I, and, I, and I pray for people who I know are lost, then I'm being intentional because I begin my day praying for God to put someone in my path that I can lead to faith in Christ. We need to be intentional. As Christians, we need to be intentional about our faith. Whatever, whether you're here this morning and you're lost, whether you're a new believer and you need to, to be obedient to Christ in baptism, identify with the Lord, get involved, learn what the Lord wants you to do. Whether you've been a Christian for a long time, we all need to be saying to the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do? Why would you leave me? What's my purpose? What's your plan? Let's pray. Father, I ask you this morning to penetrate our heart with your spirit and God your specific plan for our lives. Lord, I just ask that you help us to see clearly what you desire for us to do. I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that most of us already know what your will is for our life. Some don't, some don't, but most do. What's in question is not what is your will, but what's in question is Are we going to be willing to do it? God, help us to commit ourselves to your Lordship. Help us to be your servants. Help us, Lord, to follow you and do the things, God, you put on our heart to do. To pray for those names, God, that you bring to our remembrance. To to go to their houses and serve them and, and go wherever they are, Lord, so that we can tell them the story of Jesus. Help us, God, to minister the gospel. Whenever and however and wherever, God, you give us that opportunity. Help us not to be afraid. Lord, our greatest fear today is rejection. We don't want anybody to think bad about us. We don't want anyone, Lord, to think that we're a Jesus freak. Lord, if we don't put you first, there's not going to be any power or peace or purpose in our life. You've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Help us to recognize your authority and help us to live in your authority. Lord, help us to make those commitments that we need to make today for your glory and honor. God, for our well-being and for the salvation of the lost. I pray this in Jesus' name.